Welcome to the We Go There podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... Exactly. We go there. Because no topic should be too taboo, especially when it comes to women's health. We ask the questions you may be too afraid to ask and interview the experts to get the answers you need. So we're doing this completely unfiltered. 100%. Okay, let's go there. Today we are interviewing Dr. Jody Paluski. She is a PhD, a neuroscientist, a psychotherapist, and a mother of two. And we are so excited for her to really explain a bit more about neuroscience, specifically the neuroscience of motherhood and the effects of maternal mental illness and antidepressant medications on both mom and baby. There is so much to talk about here, and I feel like it's probably a good idea, Dr. Jody, if you can just share a little bit more about yourself and explain sort of your background and what you're passionate about. Okay. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. I'm super happy to be here and to talk about, yeah, brain changes with motherhood also with mental illness and uh, medication or treatments available. So a little bit about me. I'm Canadian. I grew up in the Okanagan and I, I became interested in this area probably really early on interested in parent child relationships. I grew up on a small farm and so we had lots of baby things and I always wanted to know how that kind of worked, how moms worked and, and um, yeah, so from there, I, I've continued in this vein of understanding motherhood and maternal brain uh, and, and when things go really well and when things don't go so well and, and how we can improve things. I'm presently living in France. I've been here for a few years and, and moved here for academic and professional reasons. Um, I married a Belgian, so sometimes it makes life complicated, but very good chocolate in Belgium. <laughs> um, and he can make fries really well. So if anybody knows, Belgian fries are actually real fries. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So I, that's a little bit about me. So, And you have a podcast called Mommy oh, yes. Brain. Yeah. <laughs> we buried the Sorry. lead there. <laughs> I buried the lead. And of course, okay. Yeah. So recently I've been really interested in, or actually been seeing the need to really, um, how do I say this? Promote the research around motherhood and the maternal brain and what we know about it. And this has really been something I've thought about the past few years, but just like you know, it's a hot topic, mommy brain. Everyone's like, oh, my mommy brain, I'm forgetting things and things are changing. And, and, um, but we actually aren't talking enough about the real neuroscience around that. And so I've been talking a bit more about this. And then I started this podcast last year where I interview other neuroscientists on their research related to motherhood, the maternal brain, parenting, and fatherhood. And so you know, sometimes we get pretty technical, sometimes we're less technical, but it's a really great way to, well, for me to chat with people I love, but also for everyone to learn about what research is taking place with regards to motherhood and the maternal brain and how complex and amazing the maternal brain really is. And so, you know, a lot of times when I talk about motherhood and the maternal brain, I'm not just talking about my research, which we'll talk about more specifically, but I'm actually talking about a lot of different um, people's research in this area and how much we know, but how much we actually don't know. And that's where it becomes 
there's a couple of things I guess I would say is one, acknowledging that our brain changes in parenting are super cool. That's number one. And number two is actually we need to figure out or we need to answer more questions. We have so many questions, but we also need to devote more time and money and research dollars to answering these questions and valuing really this important transition in a woman's life or in a, in a birthing person's life and also in a partner's life because we see brain changes there too. So that's kind of the past year where I started to move more into, I guess, science communication in that way. And I, yeah, I just want people to think about mommy brain as this wonderful, amazing thing and not as a negative thing. Uh, you know, we, we use the term mom brain or mommy brain to refer to our mental load moments or our forgetfulness and things like this um, during late pregnancy and the postpartum period, which exist a little bit. I mean, the science is not so clear on the significance or the amount or the clear memory deficits that might be there, but they're there. But there's also a ton of other things that are going on that we're not aware of that are super cool, super important um, and vital for learning how to parent. And so, yeah, so that's where I kind of, that's my passion is to get us to understand how cool our brain is when we become parents. That's it. Amazing. And what do you, so, so through that, and it's a perfect segue, like what do you wish people understood more and what do you hope through, through what you're doing with your mommy brain podcast and all this, that people understand more about the changes in the maternal brain, both, you know, when you're pregnant and postpartum. Yeah. So there's a couple things like, I mean, I really want people to understand that the brain changes, like it's, there's a head connected to that body. That's like making a baby. And I think, I mean, this, this has gotten me. Shocker. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Like there's a head, you know, you're showing the bump. Yeah. We see the bump. Now there's someone attached to that. So, um, so this is kind of my thing (laughs) and I had a, yeah, anyway, it's a thing. So, so it makes me, you know, we see the bump, like we see that change and we can accept that, but we're actually don't know or don't acknowledge the changes that are going on in our brain. Um, and there's lots of changes because, and they're good changes. They're there so that you can learn how to parent uh, and do all the things you need to do. So, I mean, yeah, if you ask me probably like, okay, my one number one go-to, like, cause this was big news a few years ago was uh, research out of Spain by uh, Susanna Carmona's group and Elselina Huxima, who's now in the Netherlands, they showed in women that lots of the brain areas, the volumes of different brain areas in women, like from before pregnancy to right after pregnancy, they got smaller. Okay. So then everyone's like, oh, so mommy brain is real. You're really forgetful. Your brain's shrinking, but they didn't show any relationship with memory. Um, and But their research actually kind of, followed some of the animal research that was showing there's a decrease in new neurons research that I did in, in rodents with motherhood. We see this decrease in new neurons and not only the hippocampus, which is an area important for stress and memory, but in other brain areas. And of course there's increases here and there as well. But the point is, is that I think when that paper came out, this whole mummy brain idea kind of exploded and there was a lot more news around it, which is super, but then it was like, oh, but there's a decrease. And then I'm, so for me, I'm always like, but 
that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I like to think of it as a fine tuning. And we started talking about this. I mean, I know Al Selena who did that research and I've talked to Susanna Carmona as well, but it's, they showed a change and we see changes also in the animal literature, but that change is necessary for healthy parenting and how a mom feels about her baby. So they showed that the extent of the change in the brain or this decrease in these different brain areas, decrease in volume, was associated with feelings of attachment towards offspring and not with memory changes, at least with what they investigated. So I like to think of our brains as becoming more efficient when we become moms and kind of like working better so we can quickly learn what we're supposed to be doing with baby. Interesting. That is really interesting. So the brains are shrinking and that helps us bond with our babies. Yeah, that's my takeaway. You That's your takeaway. And it has nothing to do with your memory. Summary. Okay. That we know of yet. Yeah. So wait, yeah. How, does that actually mean the mommy brain? I know you didn't say it's not a thing, but it's not maybe as big of a thing. Like, I mean, it is a great excuse when we forget something. Yeah. So I mean, if we talk about classic mom, mommy brain, which I I hope we'd stop using the term mommy brain and start using like mental load moments, you know? But I like that. Yes. That's, that's yeah. more accurate. Yeah, I think this is more what it is. I think we all have forgetful times in life, regardless of whether we not whether or not we have children. And that forgetfulness can be related to how many things we have going on. During pregnancy and postpartum, there are changes in your brain and there are documented changes with certain types of memory. So possibly due to the hormone changes and which are possibly also... Um, forgetfulness perhaps around things that aren't important for baby, right? So we haven't delved into that. If it's like baby specific memory or non-baby specific memory type things, there's research showing that there's um, a decrease in verbal memory. So the ability to like find words, and this was something I had an issue with. I remember with my first, like the word was there, but just not coming. Like where, like I know the word, anyway. Yes. And I still I hear you. <laughs> yeah. I still probably do this because my kids as even now, but I think it's because I'm busy. Right. Um, and you're juggling more people in your household and things like this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you hear, I mean, we have these stories. There's lots of women who struggle with feeling brain fog, feeling they can't concentrate Um, and most women will say they have felt this way. There's some research on this, but then when you look at really what this is, or you give a mom, um, questionnaires in the lab, for example, in late pregnancy and ask her about her memory in lots of these studies, she's doing pretty well. Um, but it's, if the memory is asked, if she's asked to do something at home, like call the lab back to confirm an appointment that's when the forgetfulness comes. So I did some work with um, Carrie Cutler, who's now a professor at Pullman in the uh, United States when I was in grad school on memory in pregnancy. And yeah, it was lab-based tests were fine. So quiet environment, phone's not ringing, nobody's texting, everything's fine. The memory was fine between pregnant and non-pregnant. It was the same. But the at-home memory task that's where you saw the difference. So yeah, so I guess that's a long (laughs) explanation to the whole mom brain thing is yes, it exists, 
but I think it has to do with our demands. And I also wonder, I speculate about this, does it have to do with our sensitivity towards it? You know, is there, are we becoming more hyper aware that we're not performing as we should? And is this more of a social or historical context that is also playing a role, right? Being women. Yeah. So... Yeah. There's a lot of demands. Let's be honest, like the whole multitasking. And I have, I have made, maybe you can clarify this and debunk this. Cause I have made jokes about the fact that like my husband can literally not be on a phone call and be feeding my son at the same time. Whereas like I will be multitasking and be doing like five different things at once. And I joke, Oh, it's because I'm a woman and I can multitask and men are useless at this. You know, like, ha ha ha. Is that, is that a real thing? Yeah, so are are women better at multitasking than men? He needs the backing, the research (laughs) behind it to now back it up. I need to be validated here. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I don't know about the multitasking literature and if there's a sex difference. I'm guessing, oh, I would guess that there probably is, but this could probably be for social issues. (laughs) Yeah, we'll say right. Yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah, I don't know that, but that's, that's one thing is that's talked about is like moms become better at multitasking, Yeah, but I don't know the research on that per se, but it is true that yeah, most moms are multitasking way more than dads. I mean, hopefully things will start to change a bit more and they are changing, I think as, but it also depends on lots of different factors, right. Mm. Um, In terms of work and as well, other, other things as well. So can we talk a little bit more about what is happening in the brain specifically in the case of postpartum anxiety and depression? Yeah, yeah. So I was fortunate to be part of a review a few years ago looking at brain imaging studies in women, so not animal models, but really in women, um, to get an understanding of what's going on in the brain uh, with postpartum depression and anxiety. And I did this this research with Dr. Joe Lonstein at MSU, or this was a review, I should say, uh, Dr. Joe Lonstein at MSU and Dr. Allison Fleming, who was at University of Toronto Mississauga, but is currently retired. But she is, uh, both of them are amazing researchers in this, the field of motherhood and the parental brain. So we did this review and we looked at what was going on. And just to give you a brief summary of some key points. So one thing that came from this was, which was really shocking and disappointing is that, you know, if you think one in seven women will have postpartum depression, let's say, I mean, the rates vary depending on what you're looking at, but a lot of women will struggle with mental illness and some more severe than others in the postpartum as well as pregnancy. So that's a lot of women around the globe struggling with mental illness Mental illness for me is linked to the brain. So you'd think we'd have a lot more research on the brain then, but we don't. So we pretty much reviewed what we could find in the literature uh, on this topic with these imaging studies. And there was about 25 studies. So this compares to, you know, studies on depression as a whole, where there's a few thousand papers, probably imaging studies and things like this. So already that was number one is how understudied this is, but also how common it is. And then I always think if you can help the mom, you can also, you know, it would be better for everybody, right? Baby's outcome, family, society, whatever. So that was kind of the number one. That wasn't the reason we did the review, but that was something I think that's important to keep in mind is how understudied it is. 
But then when we reviewed the literature and looked at the brain data, we see, you know, from the research, there's lots of different brain areas that seem to be affected. Um, but what was really interesting to us when we could compare it to what you see in depression at other times in life is that even though there's similar brain areas being affected with depression and the postpartum, the way they're being activated uh, is different sometimes compared to depression at other times in life. So, so we like to like, as we did this review and we're talking about it, you know, it seems like there's, there is this unique neural profile with postpartum depression. So it's not just depression in the postpartum, for example, but there's something about the brain areas and how they're communicating with each other and how they're being activated. That is unique um, to a large degree I mean, in part because you have a baby there as well. So part of these brain areas are areas that are important for mothering. We know there's this maternal caregiving network, which involves lots of different brain areas that come online to help you mother. And so with the mental illness, we see that many of these brain areas are overlapping and then their activity is changing uh, in a different way and a different way than what you see in major depression at other times in life. So that was kind of, I mean, that was, number two point, I guess, but it's a pretty interesting point because it speaks to the idea of the uniqueness and perhaps unique treatments need to be tailored towards that. And not just pharmacology, not just drug treatments, but maybe therapies as well, right? So then we also did a review of post um, postpartum anxiety. And in fact, there's not really very much data on that in terms of neurobiology at all. I mean, which is sad to think because almost what well, so many people struggle with anxiety, some with depression, but some just in anxiety itself. And we don't really know about the neurobiology from uh, imaging studies in women. I also want to say there's growing research in animal models on anxiety and depression, but you know, we need this coupled with imaging data in humans as well. And so that was another point that came forward, lack of research in this area for anxiety. And then, of course, in pregnancy, many people struggle with mental illness in pregnancy and the postpartum. And there's really not very much data at all on how the brain changes during pregnancy with these mental illnesses. So that's also a huge, I mean, that's a huge area of unknown that needs to be investigated further. So it's kind of, well, depressing to think about it. I mean, if you think of how many women struggle with these illnesses and how beneficial it can be to get access to treatment, but if we're not actually developing better treatments or tailoring them to what we know of brain changes or understanding the brain changes, then yeah, we're really failing, I think, on many levels. Yeah. yeah. That is depressing. It's yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, has this, I, I wonder, and I would be completely hypothesizing, but have the rates of maternal mental illness increased in recent years? And, you know, and I don't know if you have data on that, but I mean, do you have a gut check on that? Yeah. Well, we know since COVID, there's been some data showing that there's an increase in anxiety and depression for sure in parents. Yeah. There's research out of the University of Calgary. Um, I think it's Leanne Topher's group. She did a survey and showing since COVID, there's been an increase for sure. So, um, yeah, so it's a real thing. You know, we also know that often in 
places where there's more trauma, uh, war-torn countries, you know, scarcity of resources and stuff like that, that there's also increases in the percentage of mothers that are struggling with a mental illness. So it's very real. But I also want to say these mental illnesses are often treatable. Most cases, if you get good access to care, and that's another issue, but there are options for treatments that have been very effective. And so, you know, this is something in Canada that I'm part of the Canadian Perinatal Mental Health Coalition Collaborative, sorry, Canadian Perinatal Mental Health Collaborative, um, where we're lobbying the federal government to build a screening around perinatal mental health. So somehow um, get perinatal mental health on the agenda so that we have proper screening in pregnancy and the postpartum and treatment options and that that would be federally supported. And so that's something that I've been part of uh, and that CPMHC is headed by Patricia Tomasi and Jamie, I've lost her last name, Jamie, but anyway, (laughs) Jamie, Jamie and Patricia, they're super. And so they've been doing a lot of advocacy for that in Canada to get some, some proper screening, you know, because if we can actually get an indication of how someone is feeling and you can prevent it, that's going to be the best outcome for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. What are the most common? So in your practice and, and do you predominantly work? I take it just from your website and research I've done, but predominantly with women, like what are the most or maybe, maybe not, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but what's the most common reason that someone comes to you um, and starts working with you? Yeah, yeah. So I should give you a bit of background. I actually recently did extra training to become a psychotherapist. So I've, yeah. I've done lots of research and then I've complica- complemented my research now with this extra training because I thought it was so valuable to have a resource, like to, to be there to help moms. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say from my experience and talking to other perinatal mental health uh, practitioners, one thing that we don't talk about enough, like I was talking about postpartum depression, anxiety, and we often talk about those things, but birth trauma, the impact of birth trauma. And sometimes that can lead to depressive symptoms or anxiety-like symptoms, but that in itself is, is a huge factor. And I think also with COVID, we're starting to see bigger, we will be seeing bigger effects with regards to birth trauma because there's been a limitation on how many people can be in the room. If you can have your support person and how that, that whole structure looks. Um, and so that's a significant factor. And, and it's, you know, that in some cases could be more of a post-traumatic stress disorder and not uh, postpartum depression or anxiety or perinatal depression and anxiety as, as, we should be talking about it because it does happen, um, depression and anxiety during pregnancy. But I also think I will throw in here one other thing that also is another disorder um, that happens to about one to two in a thousand women, and that's postpartum psychosis. And this is actually um, very treatable, but it needs immediate treatment. And so this is where a psychotic episode can occur during the postpartum period. And it's quite severe, but it's treatable. And I think sometimes it's important that we're aware that these things exist. And so if you see someone having behavior that's very strange or they start talking um, in a strange way, then it's always good to check in um, with them and then with a the healthcare professional. So, I mean, 
you have a huge change in your body and your physiology across pregnancy and birth and postpartum. And sometimes things don't work out as you would expect. And your mental health is one of those things that can really be an issue um, during pregnancy and postpartum. So I feel like there's a lot of people I know who have, you know, and we're working on these things to destigmatize, right? You know, but yeah. that's something I think we should certainly talk about because there's enough pressure as it is on a good day as a new mom, let alone when you're dealing with, you know, a, a brain that doesn't seem to be functioning in the right way. So maybe yeah. you can shed some light on, you know, helping anyone listening to this who may be feeling shame or guilt or a feeling of like, why is my brain not working properly? Like, you know, whether they're struggling, you know, can you shed a little bit of light on, you know, essentially reiterating the fact that it's it's not their fault and like what's actually going on? Yeah. Yeah. So this is the other thing, you know, over the years, I've talked a bit more um, to the public about brain changes. And I remember someone saying to me, when I like learned that my brain changed, I was so relieved because there is like a biological component for my feelings of increased emotionality or whatever. And so I think this is another reason why I do what I do, because if you know that it's changing, then you're going to be more relaxed about maybe it not functioning as you would wish. So, so that's one thing. And of course, yeah, it's, there's, this is biology, this happens. So, you know, some people are more prone to diabetes or heart disease, and some people are more prone to mental, mental illness, right? And it, it, I think the problem with the stigma is there's a history behind it. It's, you know, it's, it's not behavior that we can be, we can pinpoint to a specific area. You know, if you have cardiovascular disease, it's your heart, right? But then if you have a mental illness, it's like your brain, like where in your brain and like, you know, it's just more questions around that effectively treating it. And also it, it affects our emotions, which we always like to have control of, I think to some degree. Mm -hmm. But I also have to say like, as moms, there's a whole lot of stigma around, being a mom and being happy and you should be happy. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think you don't have to be happy all the time. Like you're human. And if you don't want to be with baby 24 seven, like, do you want to be with anyone 24 seven? Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's it. It's okay to be like, I need a break. I mean, it's okay to have down times, bad days, and a range of healthy emotions. But if it's interfering with your relationships, with work, with daily functioning, then that's an issue. Um, but I think accepting a range of healthy emotions and that it's most likely related to your biology, okay, hormones. We talk about hormones all the time as women, like, or men talk about our hormones changing, even though <laughs> men, they have hormones changing too. So um, it's not just a hormonal thing. It's like, I don't know, it's a life thing and it's a biology thing. And in, in mental illness, it's a brain thing, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, that's it. So, yeah, it's, it's funny. It does, get, it usually gets pegged on to hormones, right? It's like hormonal, yeah. but, but like you noted, it's a lot of different things, including a brain thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of hormones and postpartum depression and depression during pregnancy, we actually don't have a clear understanding of what's going on at all. I, you know, <laughs> I made this like 
uh, cartoon. There is a cartoon going on around from PhD comics. They do like these cartoons and I made one for the parental brain. I can send it to you later, but basically 25, like I adapted it for the parental brain, 2,500. Was it like 4,000 before Christ or 400 before Christ? It was speculated that our brain and our hormones were playing a role in postpartum mental illness. Now we're in what, 2021? It's speculated, we know a little bit more, that our brain and hormones are playing a role in postpartum depression. (laughs) So like we haven't moved that far. Like we haven't (laughs) been able to link two and two together yet. Um, there's no biomarker really of like hormone changes that are linked to mental illness, the brain. Okay. We know this and this, and this can be a a factor, but we actually haven't linked, like we can't pinpoint it. I think that's a shame that we've just maybe accepted that mental illness in the postpartum is like, it's not a big deal. It's just the baby blues. You'll be fine. Or you should be happy. Like we haven't actually accepted that it's a unique time in a woman's life where there's, you know, an increased risk and there's more struggles going on often and that it's not always a happy time. And that, you know, we need to do something about that and provide more support. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask. Is it because is the lack of research because so many women are just like, Oh, this is, quote unquote, like normal, you know, I'm just having a number of bad days back to back to back. But again, like Nikki, we hear about it, like, but I should be so grateful because I have a healthy baby and blah, 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 blah. And, and then are not coming forth with it as much. And I know that there's obviously extremes and, and that's not, but there's so many women who do struggle and suffer from postpartum depression that are in a range of just trying to deal with it versus speaking up about it and maybe seeking help. And maybe is that, is that kind of what you're saying? And that's why there's also. No, what, you know? Yeah. So I don't think, I don't think this is the issue research wise at all. Okay. I mean, there's research on things that like right. happen to like 0.1% of the population kind of idea. Right. Yeah. And lots of money going towards that. So that I think we have so much evidence, even from the women that come forward of the rates of it happening, that when you compare it to other illnesses, it's just, you know, research wise, we're not seeing, we're not seeing the equivalence in terms of research. And I think this is for a few reasons. Women's health typically is on the back burner. Maternal health is as well. And it's not that there's a not enough research, like there's researchers who want to do the research, but we're dependent on money and funding and focus of funding. So there's lots and lots and lots of funding towards offspring outcomes, but often that doesn't focus primarily on parents, right? So you could, you know, if you're focusing on mom and baby, that might be okay. Predominantly on baby is usually better funding wise. Some funding agencies are different than others, but, you know, you can definitely look at the literature and it's a lot of baby focus, Mm -hmm. which is super. We want babies to turn out well, but it is a dyadic relationship that's really important. And, you know, parenting itself is this whole transition in the person's adult life that's important to acknowledge as well and can have an impact into aging. So of your aging as an adult and your babies, of course. So I have a question here about you said you said back to how your brain shrinks yeah, okay <laughs> so back to oh, that fine tunes fine fine tunes okay. fine tunes to help yeah. you essentially i'm gonna say it sort of 
makes it more efficient, as you meant, these are your words, to help you bond with the baby and not have to essentially focus on things that are kind of irrelevant to the task at hand of raising child. Yeah, this is the idea, I'm going to say. Yeah. Yeah. When when does brain go back to normal or does it ever go back to pre-pregnancy or (laughs) pre-birth? Good question. Well, I mean, are you ever not a parent? I mean, I'm, you know, okay, full disclosure, I love to write. I used to write quite a bit for HuffPost, like on my own blogs. And I'm reading some of my writing from before I had kids. I was like, man, I was a good writer. <laughs> like, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess it does, I mean, and you had said verbal <laughs> recall can change. Does, yeah. you know, I know this is a little bit of a light, more lighthearted example, but, you know, is it ever going to be the way it was before? that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially if you're noticing it, right. You noticed your writing before and then now you're like, Oh my gosh, who was that person? (laughs) Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't think we have clear, we don't have clear research on those types of topics with regards to like verbal memory and changes usually gets better after the first year. Um, but also we do know that parenting impacts your brain into your seventies. So brain changes. Oh yeah. Like they're there for life. Right. So there's been some research showing that there's brain changes for life. If you've been a parent, it affects your brain for life. Is that, is it a good or a bad effect? I mean, actually one study showed you have markings of a younger brain, which is essentially a good thing into your fifties. So, so I guess it's a good thing. Um, and into your seventies was another study showing both the mothers and the fathers had changes in their brains. And it was a function of the number of children they had and more predominant in the women. And if I remember correctly in that study, there was actually better memory in the women that were mothers that had more children. Oh my God, that's amazing news. So it's all going to be yeah. crappy now, but it'll be better when we're older. Yeah. And I also right. wonder, yeah, yeah. I also wonder if this is the early stages, like say under three, like three years postpartum, if it's also sleep rate mm-hmm. impacted by sleep. And I think we haven't been investigating the role of sleep as much on these factors because you can sleep deprive anyone, regardless of their parent or if they're a parent or not, and they probably will not do very good on a lot of tasks. So I think there's a hidden, not a hidden, I mean, we talk about it, but there's a need for research to understand the impact of sleep on your brain and your memory when you're a parent. And I think that this is, I mean, another area we need to learn more about. And also we know that sleep plays an important role in our mental health, really important role. So yeah, I think these are all factors that we just don't know the science behind them, but we need to start investigating them. Yeah. But I would anticipate in a few years, like at the very least, you'd probably be back to how you were, if not better, because you have more experiences. I, like I know. It. Well, I mean, the content definitely will be better. It's just getting that those words to paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get there. Oh, this is very encouraging and very encouraging. So, okay. Can we talk about your research? Because in your bio, you talk about your research um, on, I'm going to just read it here, antidepressant medications on mother and offspring. So this is getting a little more specific, but it is your area of expertise. So can you share? 
Yeah, yeah. So this is really my area of expertise and research the past few years is to understand how antidepressant medication exposure. So, you know, if you if a mom is prescribed fluoxetine or Prozac during pregnancy, for example, how that can affect the mom and the offspring. And I've been doing this work really um, in animal models. I was probably one of the first ones to look at the antidepressant medication in an animal model, but also with a, a kind of a model of maternal adversity um, or stress, stress. So that before I did my research, there was a lot of research looking at antidepressants. They gave them to a healthy rat. I use rats a lot in my research. Um, yeah, so they would give the antidepressants to a healthy animal and then look at the offspring development. But what I wanted to do, because, you know, moms who are healthy aren't taking antidepressants. So I wanted to stress the rat because stress can kind of induce some depressive or anxiety-like behaviors in rodents, in the laboratory rodents, and then give them the medication. And then I could look at the offspring and the mom and I could see, is it the stress or is it the medication that may be having an effect on different outcomes? So I should also say I started this research in, in working as a postdoctoral fellow with Dr. Tim Oberlander, who's at BC Women's Hospital, who's a, a developmental pediatrician, an amazing researcher in this field. Um, and he does, he works in, in women, with women and their children. Uh, and, and then after working with him, I started to go back to animal research. And so, like I said, you know, animals are great because we can do a lot more invasive and controlled studies with them. Of course, everything was ethically uh, approved. And so I was really interested in a couple of things. One effects on mom, um, the drug effects or the stress effects on mom, but also on offspring. And I mean, what I can tell you in a brief summary, because everyone always wants to know, well, what about my baby? Like if I'm taking my medication, right? Um, and there's been a lot more research coming out in clinical populations, so in, in women. And what we're seeing is that a big factor is not the medication use in pregnancy or breastfeeding, but it's the mood or the stress of the parent. So if your medication is working, then that's better for you and everybody. Hmm. If your medication is not working, then that's not good for you or anybody. Um, so I think this is kind of that's the, the summary of what's been coming out with the research on taking antidepressants during pregnancy uh, and the postpartum period and the effects on offspring development. Uh, so, you know, I think it's really important that treatment, like feeling better is key. That's the goal. And if it's with medication use, this is great. And of course, always talk to your doctor, you know, if you feel you would want to reduce your medication use before you get pregnant, this should be something you can probably work on with your, your physician. You know, if you don't feel comfortable taking the medications in pregnancy, then have other options. But the goal is to feel well. That's the goal. So that's one thing. Um, and there's lots of information now about medication use uh, and breastfeeding, for example. So almost any medication to continue breastfeeding is great if that's what you want to do. Um, there's also options. You know, you can ask your, your physician about the rates of transfer. There's something uh, available online called Lactmed, and it has like gives you all the calculations for the breakdown in the milk of the, the, the medication and so forth. 
I mean, of course, everyone, you know, I wish everyone a healthy and happy pregnancy and motherhood, but that's not always the case. So I think it's important that that treatment options are available and ones that work. So that's kind of the take home. And then, but, you know, when I look at the brain of my moms, my mom rats, for example, uh, and I've started to do a little bit more work in pregnancy because this is really understudied area. Um, we are seeing that of, which isn't surprising, but the brain of these moms, if they've been exposed or I've been treating them with an antidepressant medication, it responds differently than a non-pregnant virgin animal. So there's definitely different um, neural responses to the medications that we have yet to completely understand. Because, I mean, I'm interested because I also think, could we tweak the medication use? Or is there something, you know, as you're pregnant... Is there better medication than others that could be effective, different doses that are important? I know that some clinicians do measure dose response and things like this, but I think we have a lot to learn still about the medications that are available and how they affect the brain and and really on a neurobiological level. Um, And then how that affects behavior output during pregnancy and the postpartum. And of course, I'm, you know, my research and others has also shown that not surprisingly, different areas of the brain respond differently to these medications, which is normal. I mean, I think this is how these medications work, right? So, but they're different in a postpartum animal than in, um, you know, an animal that's never mothered. So again, there's lots of little details that we just don't know enough about in terms of how these medications are affecting the maternal brain and her behavior. And I'd love to be able to, you know, eventually develop some way to be like, oh, you have these symptoms, this would be the best kind of therapy for you, like, or this combination or this and that, you know, I think if we can move forward to even study all sorts of different therapies, talk therapies and pharmacotherapies and you know, be able to determine who would respond best to what, that would be really valuable for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So Doc, are there any medications during pregnancy that a woman should not take for their mental health? You know, yeah. So this is something to talk with your, your psychiatrist about. But for me, one that really um, I know is not authorized, in, not in France either, is valproate. Uh, And this is usually something that's prescribed for um, epilepsy and bipolar disorder. Now, I don't do prescriptions. I'm not a psychiatrist, um, but it's something to talk with your healthcare provider about that as well as lithium. But I don't know the research on that uh, offhand, but those are things that I'm sure your healthcare provider would talk to you about if you're getting pregnant. Um, Those are the two that come to mind of probably the more well-known medications. But I also want to point out in terms of risks, because lots of this research is risk factors. So you increase risk of X if you take this. So a lot of this research, at least with antidepressant medications like Prozac or um, Zoloft, it was done often where they looked at moms who were either prescribed the medication or not prescribed the medication. And often they weren't looking at her mood. So how well she was doing on the medication. So when research like Dr. Tim Oberlander's research and other research out of Dr. Simone Bigod did some work in 2017 out of her lab, when they started looking at mental health, 
measures. So how anxious or depressed or stressed individuals were, as well as whether or not they're on medication. Then they could start to pull apart really what are the factors affecting the risk. And in some of this research to date, who's where the research has been done, taking into account stress or mood measures with the medication, it's usually the mood and not the medication that has the effect in the long-term on baby. And obviously it's not going to be pleasant for mom if she's feeling anxious uh, or depressed and taking her medications. So, so it's really, like I said before, it's really important that treatment is effective um, that the, the medications you're taking are alleviating the, the discomfort you're having from the symptoms. So that's one thing. And I would have to look it up again, but there is a research paper that just came out showing, in fact, is population-based research. So they could look at medical records um, that were, you know, health-linked data and look at who was prescribed medication or not around the time of pregnancy. And this research was done in Norway, I believe, uh, where they have a big system of health link data. And what they showed that it was both moms, oh, I'd have to look it up, but I think it was dad's mood also was playing a role in baby's outcomes, regardless of whether he was on medication when during gestation of the baby. So mood, so basically you, you don't want to be stressed out during your pregnancy. So also I was just going to look that up, but I'm not going to look it up because that's the idea. No. So then people start freaking out. Oh my gosh, I'm stressed out. I can't be stressed out. I have to be calm. Ah, uh, okay. more stress. <laughs> yeah. And then you're totally stressed out because not good for baby, not good for baby, not good for baby. They all, you know, so the point is feeling relatively pretty good. This is good. I also think we're okay, allowed to have emotions. Like you have a bad day, you get angry, you're crying, whatever. This is normal life. If you're crying super anxious for days on end, mm. this is not healthy for you. Probably not the best for baby, but most importantly, it's not good for you. That's it. So that's, that's my take on it. So a little bit of stress is healthy, right? I mean, there's research showing there's classic research out of McGill, Michael Meany's lab. He had these like, they're often toted as good mothers and bad mothers, but basically they're rats. They lick their babies a lot, which rats do like lots of animals, um, or they didn't lick their babies a lot. So when I saw Dr. Meany give a talk on this once, he talked about it as they're high licking or low licking moms. And really the outcome of the offspring was dependent on the environment the offspring was in. So a highly keen mom, her offspring developed a certain way, but if they're put in a, an environment that was maybe more stressful, they maybe couldn't handle that. Whereas a low looking mom, her babies put in a stressful environment did well, for example, but often the high looking mom is considered the good mother. Um, although he wouldn't necessarily talk about it that way. And the low looking mom is considered the bad mother, but it all comes to many different factors and it's adaptive circumstance, right? So I think a little bit of stress is okay. I mean, you can't get away from stress. Stress is also healthy to some degree. And then in the long run, environment is playing a role as well uh, in how your child is affected by your stress and how they, they respond and develop themselves. So maybe that's a complex answer to basically be like, you can be stressed, whatever. If you're too like 
all over for too many days, that's not good. And the environment matters. So your support and the environment, system, yeah, your environment matters. Matters, yeah. Okay, so that that's good. Thank you for clarifying that and for giving that very. I think that was a great answer. <laughs> okay, just cut that as needed. <laughs> it really would. It would be a huge, a huge important thing to have um, because. I mean, speaking from personal experience, I have a few close friends of mine who are constantly trying new meds because mm. they're not getting, and they have expressed to me, you know, often emotionally and, and frustrated about the fact that, well, I've just tried this for three weeks and nothing's happening. And now I'm going to try it for three months and it's still not working. Now I have to change my dose or I have to change the med. And now I've got to wean myself off this med because, you know, and I'm going to go through this withdrawal. Like it's, it's been a learning experience for me and it's really hard to see, you know, some close friends of mine really suffer. So, yeah, I mean, that's, it's, and and I'm sure that you're, you've heard similar stories. So yeah, I think finding the right medication for the right symptoms would be a gift. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, the first line of treatment or the best actually outcomes is usually talk therapy and medication therapy for those who have severe, more severe struggles with their mental illness or mental health, I should say. So a combination is good, but then you come up with the problem cost of cost, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. psychotherapy, talk therapies are not really covered very much by most healthcare um, insurances, you know, and so it's usually the pill form is cheaper and easier to take as well and sometimes really effective, but then of course, other times not. So it can be a real struggle for people to find what works for them. And yeah, I mean, this is for moms and non-moms. It's it's a struggle living with the mental illness. And these are illnesses that we still don't know enough about um, and how to alleviate some issues. But then uh, on the flip side, I think we do know a lot and often we're not able to implement what we know. So that's also, that's mostly in terms of like support groups, talk therapies and stuff like that. Like there's a lot that we know research-wise that can be effective, but the cost or the support to put those things into place and to provide access to care is an, is another mm-hmm. hurdle to overcome. Yeah. I mean, what would you say to someone listening to this who is potentially struggling with their mental health during or after pregnancy? You know, I would say... If this is like, get some support, go talk to someone. There's lots of help available. But I would also say if you're struggling because you're not happy all the time, that's okay. You're allowed to have a range of emotions. There's a lot of stuff going on when you have a, a baby coming and you do, it's it's not your fault. I mean, there's biology behind all of this. And so, but it's, you know, these things are really important. Your mental health is super important for you and for everyone around you. And so get help. I mean, there's lots of options available. Postpartum Support International is an amazing resource. They provide um, free group therapies, like a bunch of them, different ones, different topics, um, as well as like a resource for finding a therapist in your area. And of course, you know, there's therapists, uh, many therapists, but there's often waiting lists for some. So it's a matter of, yeah, finding what fits for you, but also valuing your mental 
health. I think sometimes we don't do that. We don't want to put the money towards it. It's a cost for therapy and that's unfortunate, or we don't want to take the time for that, you know, free group, or I've been dying to, you know, do X, but I don't deserve to have the time to do that. Like sometimes you know what you need, um, but you have to actually just follow through and realize that you deserve that. You deserve to feel well. So, yeah. That's so true. We interviewed someone about why is it that we eat the crusts of the toasts of our yeah. kids' plate and we don't make ourselves the avocado toast that we really want. Yeah. I feel like that that's a really great analogy here in the same different context, but same thing. Never yeah. Same way. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, exactly. I think that's it sometimes is it, there's this culture of motherhood that's actually pretty draining for lots of people and really guilt inducing. And so if you actually want to take the time to do something you love, get your nails done, go for a walk alone, like <laughs> that's great to do it, right? Get some, leave baby with someone. If they're upset, you know, if, if you're comfortable, even start off small, like 10 minutes, if you're, if you're not comfortable leaving them, like, but if you really have this urge to do something specific to take care of you, then that's really valuable. Yeah. 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 Yeah, You, I mean, being a perfect parent or a perfect mom is like unique to you. Really. That's what I think. All these formulas of like perfectness that we see on social media. I mean, those are great. And I'm, but it's just not always what's going to work for your household. Totally. And if you're taking that time, even if it's 10 minutes, even if it's a walk and then being able to show up better because you've had yeah. that moment, but it's, I always kind of show up better after that. You know, it's true. Yeah. So true. I have, I just, it's so hard. I got, I get a lot of DMS on Instagram. Um, and there, sometimes it's someone reaching out for help because they don't really yeah. know who to turn to. So they're reaching out to a stranger on Instagram for help. And I always try to answer. And in particular, you know, one woman had basically said, you know, I asked for help, like a mother's helper. I've got three kids. And the response from both husband and mom was suck it up. Like just suck it up. Like you can't handle it. Maybe you should go get a job so we can afford it. Like one of those, you know, And, and I'm like, oh, First of all, I want to sit down and talk to that husband, see how he would handle three kids on, you know, whatever. That's yeah. a side conversation. But, but I mean, there's also, as you mentioned, this culture of like, yeah. you wanted the kids, you got to deal with them kind of thing. Yeah. And I think, but it's, you know, all these things, it's easier said than done. Like take 10 minutes to yourself, go get your nails done. Yeah. Like I just said that. And like, in reality, can you do that? But what it is, is more than that is, you know, you don't need to do a self-care list or anything, but what often there's something in the back of your mind, like, oh, like you'll hear yourself say it like, oh, I wish I could read that magazine. So then maybe that's your trigger to like, try to figure out how you can do that, that little thing that you think will give you a little bit of relief. In the grand scheme of things, like you can't parent alone, like you need to have support. And I think women are incredibly strong and amazing to take on the role of mother because that's a huge role. And our culture has definitely specifics about how that role should be carried out. And it's not always enjoyable to try to navigate your way through what you can and cannot do and accept that. Um, 
but yeah, moms are important and their mental health and their well-being is important. But on top of that, moms are also like, it's pretty amazing what you go through during pregnancy and postpartum and your whole body and brain, right? That kind of prepares you for this. Yeah. But in the end, I think we need to do more. We need to do more to provide better support, um, better knowledge of maternal health, maternal mental health, maternal brain, all these things, right? So I think that that's really where I hope the future will go in terms of research. Um, and I hope that there's some kind of strength in, in knowledge, right? If you know your brain's changing, if you know your brain's not working as well as you think, hopefully that's also giving you some understanding of who you are. And you're like, you know what? My brain's kind of having a tough day, but this is going to be okay. Maybe tomorrow will be a bit better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I think it, I can't stop thinking about the research component and the lack of funding and things like that, because when you said the study that you had done and it's showing that if, if you're less stressed and I'm going to say it in a far less eloquent way, but less stressed and in a better you know mindset that that's better for baby, right. Is kind of the synopsis. And then postpartum, I'd imagine similarly, like if you're in a better mental, you know, place and less stress, et cetera, better for baby. And then moving on to child, like, you know, toddler into their childhood, et cetera. So one almost goes when, when more research is done on baby and offspring, et cetera, like one goes, they go hand in hand really is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a, a like a dyadic relationship, right? So um, and then of course, with a partner, ideally the three of right. you would work together, but you know, a lot falls on moms and, you know, we're talking about mom, baby, but then there's mom, baby and toddler. And like, that's a whole other dynamic that hasn't been researched so much, at least in, in neuroscience and the, the reproductive experience. But, um, yeah, what was, I'm losing my train of thought, but the point is, is I, <laughs> I think there's so many dynamics and, but one thing I think that's really important is, is your health is really important for your functioning. And so then, and then that's important for your baby and family. And so yeah, it's easier said than done. And you don't have to feel perfectly wonderful all the time, but remembering that you deserve to feel okay. Like this is great. You need to like take that next step. It's okay. It's okay to make your motherhood how you want it. You know, if you, yeah, it's just a matter of, it takes a lot of strength, I think, to develop that. And it's an experience or it's a a journey, let's say, uh, as you go through your, your motherhood journey, you have to find your way. I think that that's important is finding your own way. Learning along the way is the way, you know, taking bits and pieces from what you learn from friends and social media and whatever, but making it your journey and what works well for you and your family is really important. Absolutely. Well, it's been really informative. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. And we really appreciate the research that you're doing and, and hope that, you know, it does 
start to impact care and treatment and support for women. And as you mentioned, I'm glad that you talked about culture of motherhood and, and how things need to shift, you know, and obviously there's a reason that anxiety and depression has increased over COVID because there's a, a, a dramatic reduction in types of support, you know, birth trauma, the whole thing. So yeah, this is a very juicy topic. And I feel like we could talk to you about this for hours, Dr. Jackie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, a lot of the stuff, I mean, I'm, I am an expert in the neuroscience of parenting. Um, and a lot of the stuff, you know, sometimes I'm obviously talked about some of my thoughts and opinions, especially on culture and all those factors, but I think there's so much that we need to be discussing and uh, more about motherhood and all the amazing things as well. So we kind of touched on a lot of the mental illness aspects, but it's really is a lot of amazing things that are going on in your brain and your body to make you a parent. And so I think that's cool and something to remember. And thank you for having me. 50, 60, 70, it just gets better. (laughs) Yeah. You have a younger brain. Yeah, younger brain. So yeah. we're really I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah. Mickey's yeah. writing is gonna be stay tuned. Yeah, Mickey's writing tuned. is gonna be here, there's like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, basically. Exactly. That's kind of what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is an intensive time where you like when your babies are younger, where your brain is like geared towards making babies arrive, right? Like the basics. And then as they move on their way and become more independent your brain will be like, Oh, let's bring in those other things that you, mm-hmm. you were doing really well. This is my yeah. like speculation, but yeah. What yeah. But it's that? a great question of when does it change? Like when do things get less foggy, less, more improved, right. In terms of the cognitive capacity. Um, but we have to remember that the bonding and all those sorts of things are really what's happening. The focus of your relationship right now. Mm-hmm. Cause I like, Yeah. And I'll leave it with this because I think we forget that how much we're learning, but there is these studies done in the nineties that where women, if they were exposed to the back of the hand of their infant and two other infants within hours of giving birth, they could um, recognize their infant just by touching the back of their hand. Yeah. So moms can do stuff that are super cool. like super cool that we don't know about. Like we don't think about it as we're doing it. So yeah, I love this study. I mean, maybe it needs to be replicated, but they also showed something similar with dads. If the dad spent, it was longer time with the newborn, but you know, given three hands, little baby hands and they could touch, touch, touch. And they knew which one was theirs. I mean, so cool. So So that's something we've learned. Like we learn really rapidly and our brains are learning that when baby, when we interact with baby in the first few hours. Love that. Yeah. Oh so there you go. Thank you so much um, for coming on and everyone should check out your website and podcast, Mommy Brain Revisited. Um, and then they can follow you at mommybrain.revisited. And then of course your personal, which will include all of these in the show notes. So everyone can click to follow um, along and, and get all the great information that you share uh, through your research that you do. So thank you again for taking the time today. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was great. Thanks, Doc. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Bye, Nikki. Bye. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.